You're listening to The Doers Podcast, right here on The Doers Network. And now, here's your host, Donald Robinson II. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to The Doers Network. I'm Donald Robinson II, your host. And for this episode, we have a special treat for you. We have a live recording of a fireside chat with Mr. Eric Bond, general partner and co-founder of Hustle Fund, moderated by Mr. James Chapman, co-founder of Plain Sight, an app where you can find your next co-worker, employee, co-founder, or colleague in your area. So now take a listen and enjoy our fireside chat with Eric Bond and James Chapman. app and you message me through the app um, I'm JC that's checked in whatever questions you have for Eric you can ask through there but then I'll also do it old school as well with just like a raise of the hand kind of thing all right so um, so Eric man welcome back to the D when's the last time you've been in Detroit oh like eight months ago maybe okay yeah. okay sweet sweet and so you're uh, you're from this area uh, but you've been to a lot of places right all over the world um, what makes the Detroit entrepreneurship scene special um, yeah. as opposed to, you know, maybe some other ecosystems you, you visited? Yeah, totally. Um, I'll answer that question, but I need to actually ask a quick favor from all of you guys. So, uh, if you'll bear with me, I'm working on a 30-year wedding gift project for my kids right now. So, I don't like being away from home. I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. I try to make this a quick trip, mainly so that I can go back to my kids soon. And this is the art project. On their wedding days, I have two kids, I'm gonna to put together a compilation video of all the crowds that I had a chance to address while they were sleeping at home with a message that says, hi, Owen and Stella. Okay. So this is what I need you guys, I'm gonna, so this is the exercise. Right? Oh. I'm gonna um, turn around and start a video selfie. I'm gonna be in the foreground with my face. And on the count of three, I want everyone to say, Hi, Owen and Stella. Okay, so let's let's all practice here. Okay? On the count of three, I want you guys to say hi, Owen and Stella. Okay, one, two, three. Hi, hi Owen and Stella. All right. Remember what you just did there. So let me try this. Okay. You want me to hold that while you do, uh, while you do that? Okay. Go ahead okay. So I am preparing the video. I am flipping the camera. All right. There we go. I'm gonna do a, little, a pan like this. Okay. All right, guys. On the count of three, one, two, three. Hi, Owen and Stella. Love you. All right, thank you for watching that. If you're lucky, you might get an invite in like 30 years. So, you know, be nice to me today for that. So so aside from getting Detroit entrepreneurs to do quirky shit like that, what, what, what else makes what else makes the, the uh, Detroit entrepreneurship scene special? Yes. Okay. Thank you so much, James, for that, and thank you uh, to all you guys for indulging me. So, um, you know, I was born and raised here in Michigan, uh, right outside of Detroit, and you know, growing up in the '80s and '90s, I was so excited to get away from Michigan. It was a tough time. Were you guys who who here was here during like the '80s and '90s in Michigan? And, and God bless, because you guys probably stayed and actually, you know, built the city again afterwards, and I did it. So, um, you know, my dream was to go out to California, start a company, make a life out there. I ultimately did do it, but then, as I started a family, as I started to get a little bit later in my tech career, something was starting to pull me back into Michigan. 
deployed back into Detroit. And what I realized was actually a couple things. First, and this is not to pander, but there really is no place on earth like Detroit. I mean, the people here are so tenacious, so tough. And authentic. Authentic, I like that, gritty, we can keep, keep going. Yeah, I mean, like, it's, it's a, it's, and, but also just have each other's back, right? And there's like these small cues I was starting to notice, just among my community. You know, I work in a, I, I live in a townhome community where all eight of my neighbors in this little cul-de-sac work at Facebook. None of them had been living in the Bay Area for more than four or five years, except for me, 19 years. There's not really much of a neighborhood there, right? Look at this community out here. I mean, I, I'm not like anything that special, but you guys showed up. Right? And like this is like, you don't see these kinds of events really out here. So this is kind of a circuitous way of answering your question, James, is just like, I think there's a level of authenticity, I think, I like that word, that I found with uh, Detroiters here, when, uh, especially those in the tech community, a level of humility that's harder to find increasingly in Silicon Valley. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, as a venture capitalist, like one of the things that I think a lot of founders do not understand and appreciate, maybe vice versa, two ways, is that the relationship that I have with a founder is a lot like a marriage. And in fact, it lasts longer than a lot of marriages. Yes. <laughs> so if I invest in James' company now, it's gonna be like a seven to 10 year journey before you IPO, right? And uh, it's better to do that with people who are authentic, doing it for the right reasons, mission oriented, have your back, versus someone that's transactional, yep. right? Just wants the money, goodbye, I'll see you in 10 years, right? So I think like it's this quality that's really difficult for me to describe in this way that I haven't found in any other market. And I spend a lot of time in Canada, different parts of the United States, obviously in California too. So, uh, you know, I feel lucky because, you know, I, I feel like it's only a matter of time before the, the rest of the VC community around me, like, understands. It has to come out here and do some work with these others. Yeah. yeah. So, um, it's, it's funny because you, you know, you're not, you're from here, but, but don't currently live here. And I'm not from here, but I currently live here. Um, and, and so, I've been living in Detroit for the past three and a half years. Yeah. Um, and I've had the privilege to, to get to know a lot of founders and entrepreneurs and entrepreneur-minded people and um, entrepreneur support organizations uh, like Build Institute and Bamboo, et cetera, et cetera. And to answer my own question, one thing that I've found different from the, the limited other um, entrepreneurial communities that I've been in, um, aside from the authenticity, I would say is the sense of community, to, to yeah. piggyback on, on yours. Uh, I, I, I would say if, if you're an entrepreneur and you ask another entrepreneur in this town for help, um, not only will they help you, right, they're gonna try to make sure that you succeed, right? They, they, they want to actually see you do well. And that's, in, that's encouraging, right? But because entrepreneurship is a very lonely game. Um, there's a lot of late nights and a lot of early mornings and you're doing it all by yourself. So it feels like, so when you have this sense of togetherness where it feels like other people are doing it with you, yeah. it gives you that, that, that extra push. So, so kudos to the, to the, to entrepreneurship scene in, in Detroit for sure. Um, so you are one of the partners with Hustle Fund. Um, so, so just tell us all, what is the Hustle Fund? What makes the Hustle Fund different? Yeah. Um, this might be a bit of a longer answer. I'm going to try to go. I get on my soapbox here. So, 
Um, hustle fund is the business of what we describe as pre-seed investments. So it's that earliest tranche of capital that founders are trying to raise. Often they get it from family members, friends, uh, maybe some angel investors. And we're trying to build an institutional venture capital fund that provides capital alongside of these parties. There's uh, very few of them that we know of, at least in, in Silicon Valley. And here's the problem that we're trying to solve. So if I were to describe to you the type of founder right now, primarily in Silicon Valley, that's getting disproportionate access to early stage capital, it's actually a very narrow set of people. White Asian men, went to a Stanford or MIT kind of equivalent school, has a computer science degree, worked at a Google or Facebook or that kind of equivalent. So there's this super narrow band of race, gender, pedigree, phenotype that a lot of seed investors are investing in because they believe it's safe. So here's a, where the collision, I think, where of, of principles happens with Hustle Fund is fundamentally, there's a simple law of nature that we believe in, and most people, I think, in this room believe in here, too, is that great hustlers look like anyone and come from anywhere, right? And when we looked at the data, we were previously at a larger fund and started to see if we could correlate across race, gender, and pedigree across this very narrow band of profile that I just described to see whether there's a predictive indicator of success later on. The conclusion was really clear. It's not. Not at all. I mean, like, sometimes they do well, sometimes they don't. It's completely random. But in the course of this research, before we started Hustle Fund, we started to look at some very different metrics. We started to understand that we tried to look at things like code commits, number of experiments the teams are running, sales pipeline processes, whether they're actually closing deals. And it turns out that the teams that measure against execution metrics, the right one that are relevant for their given business, and just grind it out with high velocity and great execution consistently week after week, month after month, and year after year, grind out the best businesses over time. And these people that I'm just describing, these true hustlers who execute well with high velocity, truly look like all of us. It looks like the population of the United States when we're looking at our data. So here's the opportunity that we saw with Hustle Fund, which was to merge a social precept that we fundamentally believe, this notion of great hustlers look like anyone and come from anywhere, with capitalism, which is, so I'm going to go on like a little bit of like something that triggers me a lot. There's been a lot of discussion in my industry about creating diversity funds or women's funds or uh, underrepresented minority funds. And that's fine, but subliminal or just like, a, like between the text there, you almost hear it described as like lowering the bar. Yeah, right? It's just, yeah. oh, we have a little diversity funds because I have guilt or something like that. You know? it's, but what we've concluded is actually inclusivity and diversity is actually the way you make the most money. Because when you are the, yeah, I mean, like when you are actually very open-minded to the notion that great hustlers look like anyone can come from anywhere, and by extension to that, that anyone in this room who has the ambition to do so and some clever hustle can actually go after a billion-dollar opportunity, then why would you say no to that due to whatever implicit biases that you have about like what a founder should actually look like, right? So here's the deal. This is actually very difficult for me to admit, but I'm gonna say it anyway. I grew up in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. <laughs> Anyone here familiar with Bloomfield Hills? Yes. All right, do you know the stereotype of Bloomfield Hills kids? Yes, we do. 
One time, I went to the Fox Theater when I was a teenager, and I made the mistake of telling some other teenager kids I'm from Bluefield Hills, and that was a mistake. We kind of got into it a little bit. It's a rich kid's town, right? I grew up in a rich kid's town. I went to a rich kid's school. I went to a rich kid's workplace, which is Facebook and Instagram after that. So the reason why I'm sharing this is I would be lying to you, straight on, if I said that racism and sexism has not played a huge part in developing my own implicit biases because I've been surrounded by these communities and largely have accepted it too for a large part of my, of my life, right? And the thing that scares me about that is that I think that this actually blinds me from great opportunities at times. So here is how we're trying to solve this at Hustle Fund and why we're a little bit different, is we think that the way to cut through all of that crazy implicit bias that even I am aware of, that I'm trying to overcome with lots of therapy every week, is by <laughs> focusing on the team's hustle. So we start by deploying a $25,000 check into a team within the first meeting usually. So if we think that a team is working on an idea that makes us very curious, we can write that check immediately. It's a small exposure given the size of our fund where we can take a lot of risk on, on teams that are very different from us. We'll then work with the teams on growth projects for four to six weeks. And it's during that period of time where we get a sense of watching the team's execution, watching for their hustle, seeing how effectively they're building their companies. And also the founders are watching us to see whether we're venture capitalists are actually adding value. Or, or in the worst case, we're not adding value and we don't deserve to be part of the journey moving forward. But when we find that the hustle is awesome, and we, on both sides, and we like working together, and we think that the market is venture-backable can support a big outcome, then we'll ask to participate in your next financing round with a much larger check, up to a million dollars, to make you a core position within our fund. And that is actually sort of the dating period that transitions into marriage and transitions into a great seven to 10-year relationship together. So the thing that I really love about this is hustle is the saving grace in allowing me to check my implicit biases in a big way. It's not perfect but it is pretty good. And I love the fact that I was totally wrong about, about the black female founder in Minneapolis that I took a risk on. She blew me away by just showing me like, yo, I am a billionaire founder, I'm gonna be doing this. And being also wrong in cases that people that I thought had perfect pedigrees from Princeton, PhDs in computer science, who flop, right? It is such a fun world to be in when you're proven right or wrong. And just to learn from that, truly really great hustlers look like anyone can come from anywhere. And also merging that social mission with capitalism and trying to prove that like, if we win, then other VCs have to follow. Because why would you say no to more money? That's right. Right? That's right. So um, we're gonna have a better conversation than I thought. Uh, but, but, uh, but because I can, I can relate to what you're speaking of um, as a black man who is in the startup tech industry, um, trying to raise money, trying to compete. Um, you know, one of the things that is uh, unique about Plainsight, our, our social networking platform, is that there's no names and no profile pictures. Mm. And the reason why we did that, it, yeah. two reasons, one, privacy, right? But two, to combat unconscious bias, because we realized that, I, re I won't even say we, I'll speak for myself, like, a lot of times you don't get an opportunity because of what you look like. You're, 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 
but before you even get a chance to say two things, before somebody even takes a full look at your profile or your background or your capabilities, they'll see your name. If they can't pronounce your name or if they see your face and what you look like doesn't match up with the industry that you're in, they don't even entertain it, right? And so if you succeed and we and I and I succeed at what I'm doing, then hopefully we'll both be able to really move the needle on, on a lot of shit. So I'm I'm glad that I'm glad that we're that we're like minded in, in that way. Um, so another question for you as we're talking about people, right? And and finding talented people. What traits do you guys look for in a person, a founder, a startup that says, you know what, yep, I do want to work with them? So, again, the way that we define hustle for us is great execution and high velocity. And one of the things that I've learned is, is um, you know, I've definitely grown up in a lot of privilege. But in one aspect, I have seen a little bit of bias in the sense that I have no engineering background. So I've, I've studied sociology in college. Um, I loved it, no regrets. And I've pursued only a technical career ever since. And the thing that really gets to me, this is a bit of a side comment, I try to get directly to it, bit, cool. is like, you know, there's this notion that like non-techies don't believe or don't belong in this community as well, right? Calls so much BS on that. I mean, there are so many examples of non-techies who have gone on and created amazing companies, right? Like Scott Cook of Intuit, Katrina Lake of Stitch Fix, you know, I could just keep going on and on and on. And uh, I think one of the things that um, defined those founders, both non-technical and technical, for the, just like getting more to the Harvard question, is just like, they are just endlessly resourceful. Yeah. You know, like if there's like a piece of code that me and James can't figure out, we'll find a way <laughs> of getting the answer to that. If there is like a piece of knowledge in terms of enterprise sales that's so niche for selling an aircraft part, yeah. we have to do that kind of business someday together, maybe we will, then like we will find an expert. I mean like you, there's just this quality of, of hustler and hustle, especially you can find this in like Detroit where it's just like, I don't know the answer to it, but like I'll easily find a way, right? Just give me like 24 hours or something. Um, and you can't teach that. You can't teach that. I think it's like a combination of like a little bit of chip in your shoulder, a combination being naturally maybe a little bit more clever too and curious. I think curiosity is like a really big part of it. It's just like the joy of figuring out how this all works. That like cuts across like so many dimensions. Like it, it doesn't matter if you're technical or not, like you can be super good at this form of hustle or not. And and that's sort of a trait that we see. So I'll give you like a real example. It's like some of the best founders I see as a pattern is like we'll we'll have a meeting, like me and James. And then we'll talk about like this one idea of an uh, experiment that we, we want to run. Like James, the founder, might be like, I don't quite know how to do that. And then 24 hours later, he texts me saying like, okay, I ran the experiment, here's the data, right? You just, there's a certain kind of uh, quality founder, I think, that is just really good at just somehow finding the answer somehow, yep. right? Yep. And uh, it's not isolated only to businesses and tech. You can find this in all kinds of businesses. but. That's, that's sort of a trait that you can really begin to observe for as you watch teams work and as you engage with the founders. It's really hard to get that from like a pitch interview. Yeah. So as, as hustlers are, are hustling along and they're, they're building great products and they're doing it with a great team and that kind of stuff, how important are metrics along the way when they are building out these very big, hopefully big businesses that they're into? Yeah, so I want to tie this to sort of the earlier comment around like implicit bias and like our hustle fund model is like 
you know, if we were working together, James, and let's say that there's a situation where like a VC that I tried to recommend to you is like, you know, totally loaded with bias and didn't want to talk to you, but I could just point to a number and say like, he made fifty thousand dollars last month, right? Like numbers don't lie, <laughs> right? So like, you know, you're you're either closing deals and building a real business or you're not, and at some point the metrics are going to show it. Like more money comes in than the money going out. That's really that all business is, right? More and then not spending as much. And so, um, fundamentally, this is actually maybe one bias that I'm, I'm very proud of. It's just like, I like teams and I like coaching teams and getting into that mindset of like, it doesn't have to be revenue, but at some given stage of your business, whatever it is, there's something that you can measure, right? And it, it is just a good way for your team to agree on some level of measurement and have some objectivity behind it. Else, like, if you and I are doing like, uh, some sort of project where we haven't talked about metrics, how we're going to measure it, how we're going to see whether the experiment worked or not, then it's just my opinion versus yours. Yeah. Both of us are right or both of us are wrong. It's hard to tell, yeah. right? Yeah. So uh, that's one thing that we really tried to work on with the founders early. It's just like, what are you trying to measure at this stage? How are we going to measure it? And how are we going to like look at the metrics together on a daily basis to see whether we're actually pushing it in the right direction? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, so I'll, I'll ask one more question, and I'll, I'll open it up for um, for the audience to, to start at, uh, asking some questions. Um, I I'm, I followed the um, the Hustle Funds newsletters, pretty good newsletter. Um, and one of the things that that came across I wanted to bring up is myths around fundraising. Um, we all as founders have these assumptions around raising money, around what it takes to raise money, around when we'll be able to raise money, around why we should be able to receive money for our, for our startup, right? Talk to me a little bit about some of the, the myths and assumptions that you've seen some, some startup founders have. Yeah. Thanks for uh, blowing up my spot because I actually have not read that newsletter specifically. So let me let me try to just like make up my own. No, no. Let me sort of talk to like the myths that at least I see from my perspective. Okay. So actually, uh, okay, I'm not going to call out this person. We this is, we spoke earlier this afternoon. I don't want to embarrass you, uh, but like I want to just super emphasize how lazy venture capitalists are. So when you're putting together your perfect pitch deck with tons of data, tons of supporting evidence, lots of text, you know what we're reading? The headlines of each slide. Yep. 30 seconds, max. Trying to get 70% confidence on what this thing is all about, and then making a decision to either ignore and you never hear from us again, or send you back a text message or email that says like, let's meet up. That's it, right? Okay, I'm not speaking for myself. I try to treat our founders better, I promise you that. But like, it's, it's, uh, it's incredible how little is going to be read in terms of the decisions on that first pass, right? So I think that's like one thing to keep in mind. And by the way, the solution to this is actually an exercise that I went, with, went on with, with uh, one of the founders here is make sure each one of your slide headlines is a full sentence that describes the core of what that slide's supposed to communicate. When you read only the headlines of your slide deck, they should, fill, they should create a cohesive paragraph where I can get 75% of what your business actually does, right? So don't do a slide that's like problem, solution, market, traction. It should be problems like uh, sudden infant death syndrome is like affecting like 33,000 parents per year, like uh, solution. We've created a, a wearable sock that allows early detection of like um, infant breathing. And then, you know, like, Whatever. yeah, like, you know, you can, like I'm just reading like the slide headlines in my mind. I'm just like, oh, I get this, you know? Like, yeah. I, I totally get this. Yeah. Um, 
Here's the other myth too that Dash I think might have been in. I, I quickly skimmed uh, uh, earlier when I found that. I didn't read the whole thing too. It's still lazy me. See, it's like um, there's this notion. Okay, I see this a lot, which is a big mistake. Is founders approaching us and saying like, I put no money behind our marketing, but look at all these results. Okay, that sounds awesome at first, right? Which is just like, whoa, like is this a viral product or something? And like, you're not putting any marketing spend, but you got a thousand users or something. The problem with that is that that is not a strategy, right? Like at some point, uh, there's going to be a plateau to virality in 99% of cases. Like those who actually can figure out sustainable Facebook-like virality over the course of 10 years have incredibly special skills and resources to do that. The growth team at Instagram, where I used to work, had 12 product managers only focused on the new user experience of downloading the app, going through the tutorial, and signing up. 12 growth product managers on that one single set of, of, of screens, like three screens. Incredible, right? Um, so competing with that is crazy. So a better approach would be like, look, I found this at least one channel, ideally two channels, where we're acquiring users or making sales, right? So let's say that I have like a real estate product, like I can work through real estate agents and like here's a process by which I've been selling real estate agents to resell my services to homeowners. And I have like a Facebook ads, let's say, that allow me to go directly to the consumer and I have data to support how much it costs in both channels and why it's scalable and why if you give me a million bucks, like I can turn that million dollars into $10 million. Yeah. So I think proving more channels of acquisition and sales is really great. And just showing up with, with a slide that says like, we're viral is, is not good enough. That's right, yeah. that's right, it's not sustainable. Yeah. Um, all right, I wanna open it up to the audience now. Who, who has questions? I saw your hand first, and I'm, I'm coming to you next. So, pitch deck or video? Uh, it's always, you're in that, should I send this, this great video that I produce of my idea gives you that what you want to see, that the impacts, or just a, a normal pitch deck that people go through slides? Sure, yeah. So the question was, uh, what's a preferable format, video or pitch deck? So I'm gonna paint a picture right now. So it is Thursday at 4.30 p.m., okay? Uh, I am a more handsome, taller version of myself with like a, an MBA from Harvard. I'm a principal at a tier one VC firm in somewhere on Sand Hill Road, this beautiful kind of country road next to Stanford University. Right down the street at five o'clock in just 30 minutes, I'm going to go to the Thursday night bar night that all the VCs go to, and it's, it's, it's bumping. Like this is like a crazy party, like every Thursday. I'm not allowed to go, I'm married, okay? I don't, I don't touch that seat. And so 30 minutes from now, like in my Patagonia vest and all bird shoes, I'm gonna like walk over to Rosewood Hotel to check out Madeira Butter, but I got 30 pitch decks left to review before I gotta go, okay? 30 seconds to one minute is about the right amount of time to review a deck for most of these guys. Like I've watched them go through their inbox and I've even seen them just like say no to subject lines in the email. So the problem with video is you can't skim it. You know, the great thing about slides is I can go at my own pace. I can go backwards, I can go forwards, and so forth. So I think that when it comes to approaching a venture capitalist, especially when it's colder, um, 
you gotta go through progressive discovery. So examples like when I went on a first date with my wife, I didn't go through like my family's history of mental health issues and like you know the problems I've had with my mom. You know, I was painting like you know like I went to the gym earlier and like you know check out my pecs. You know, like like I was, I was showing my best self. And then as we are developing a relationship, that's when I can expose more vulnerability about myself. Kind of want to take apply maybe not the pecs part, but like you want to like uh, apply some of those principles over to how you think about VCs. It starts really with like a blurb. It's like an email with like three sentences describing what you guys are doing. Um, the next part of it would be like a teaser deck that maybe you, you include as part of that email that you can look at, it's like five slides. You know, something that gives you a little bit more details. And then the response to that email that you desire is, let's meet up, that's it, just like three words, let's meet up. Then, during that, that meeting when you're in Sand Hill Road, in front of this like, beautiful mahogany table with like 15 partners, that's when you can really go into it and control the narrative, like with a long deck, explaining all the nuances about your business, answering all the questions, and so forth. But you gotta work up to that, right? We can't ask for marriage on the first date. That's good so, That's good yeah, actually, I think that's enough. Let's go. <laughs> go okay, hi, my name is Big Bell, and I have a solar-powered software-driven public lighting device that I'm developing with the team. And the idea is to do small public spaces like alleyways, pedestrian walkways, viaducts, tiny parks, um, safe routes to school. So my question is, like with the Hustle Fund, are you looking to just do commercial products? Are you looking for um, just, is it software driven? Is it hardware driven? And then the second part of that is, Okay, is this a pilot program to see if it works and then, you know, you're going to cut it off after the first round of folks or, you know, how is this supposed to proceed? Great question. We invest in software, we're a generalist fund, so we'll look at everything that's software enabled. Uh, so there's some hardware in there, there's a lot of traditional software, etc. cetera. Uh, with regard to uh, the way you think about our growth project is the way we, we sell Hustle Fund primarily on our expertise in growth. So all of our partners, including myself, have started, scaled, and sold the company, right? So we were operators for 15 years before we started companies. In fact, true story, I met all the women I'm currently growing old with within the first week of school. I met my wife on the first day of college, my co-founder Elizabeth on the next day in a math class, and then she and my third partner at some party later on. So uh, I'm pretty sure it was that week. I was a little bit hazy that night. So, um, but like the subsequent 15 years of our career before Hustle Fund, actually closer to 17 years, was uh, all in operations and primarily in growth functions uh, with our own businesses. So the way that we sell Hustle Fund to founders is like consider us a really quick 25k check with growth help, and that's it. You know, and like to be honest with you, like uh, it's a pretty narrow band of founders that go on to become core positions, about 20% after those who receive the 25k, but. We also strongly believe that we're offering a lot of value in the growth, right? Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a, we don't try to set an assumption to act a certain way. And honestly, it's very hard to fake running your company <laughs> for like four to six weeks. Uh, we, we haven't found a successful founder to actually do that yet, and nor do they really take that approach. Um, so with this initial 25K, you know, it's kind of, um, these might be like the only options that these founders have. So do you guys just have a flat, this is what we look for, we want equity in your business, 
going to charge you 10 to 15 percent or whatever? Or do you kind of um, customize it based on whatever the situation might be with the, the founder? Great question. So we always negotiate the valuation. It really depends on the region. So it's very different to compare like a Toronto company to a Detroit company to like a San Francisco company. That's one thing. Uh, the second thing too is there's a lot of flexibility in how we define the growth project. Mm -hmm. So uh, that can be timed at the right time and makes sense. Like the worst thing is like I invest in James and he's not ready for a growth project because he's still like launching the platform and it's just like we're like you know pushing through something that isn't really necessary at this point. We can time things a little bit differently. Um, and I, I want to see. I had another point, but I think that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Hold on to it. Okay. Um, questions on this side? I see you back there with your hand raised. Go ahead. Yep. Go ahead. Um, so you said four to six weeks with the initial twenty-five thousand. Is that like an incubator model? Does, does the founder go out there? Is it phone calls daily, weekly? How? It's it's not an incubator. It's just uh, we do a one-hour weekly Zoom call. That's like our and it's designed as a sprint. So we'll do a retrospective on the data that we've looked at, talk about the currency of the business, and talk about the next week's experiments. And then we have text and Slack conversations nearly every day, where we like talk about the data, we're seeing our review your dashboards, we can jump on the phone, it's, it's meant to be sort of ad hoc. So like, philosophically, here's the problem that I see with VCs and founders, just to like, take a step back, is um, it's an asymmetric relationship right now. It feels like I'm sitting on one side, I have all the money and power, you're sitting on the other side. I've sat on your side before, and here's the problem with asymmetric relationships, it's ripe for abuse, right? Let's talk about women founders for a second here. You might have heard of the Me Too movement. It's happened in the media space. It's happened in a huge way in venture capital as well, because it turns out that when you have a high concentration of about 93% men in venture capital who are controlling 100% almost of all like the VC dollars, uh, I guess some people turn out to be kind of creepy and abuse that relationship, right? So, uh, I'm, I can't even empathize with that. Like, I, I just, it's unfathomably like, rough, right? So, the reason why I bring this up is that this growth project, I feel like is one of the checks and balances on ourselves. Like, if I'm not adding any value to you on this growth project, and you're not feeling like you're getting a lot out of our calls or text messages, then you have the right to tell me like, Go after yourself, right? Just like you know, this is not this is not working out. I don't want to have you in this journey. So, and venture capital, I think, fundamentally needs to be a services-based business, where it's like our job is actually to unblock you. Your job is not to actually impress me, right? And so, uh, very few VCs, I think, really are practicing that. Um, but you know, hopefully, we are. And the only way to find out is to work with us and see what we're actually. Being genuine about this, yeah. yeah. Okay. Questions on this side? I will get you next, and then I'll try the same thing. Just go ahead. Yeah, yeah you. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Uh, so I often think about uh, fundraising as a sales funnel, right? So there's a strategy to it. You've got an angle, you've got a position, you've got a message. Um, but you know, every day I think about, you read the headlines of businesses that have raised a lot of money, and you're like, wow, I have no clue how that business just got preceded for $2 million. Yeah. I guess from your position, is, you know, from the VC's standpoint, it's very much deal flow, right? Yeah. You see the ideas, you get an idea of what the good ones are. The position of a founder, is volume a really important part of this, or is being super thoughtful about who you're targeting, 
the message that you're sending to them. So right, so am I better off sending 20 emails in a given day? No, let's put it this way, 100 emails in a given day. Or 10 really thoughtful messages to potential funds that I genuinely believe to be a fit. I'm gonna answer this in two ways. So you're asking about like uh, different <coughs> strategies for reaching out to VCs to, to, uh, to fundraises. So here's like the non-BS answer for why those people are raising so much money is privilege. You know, like you came from a rich family who's really connected. Your dad is someone, your mom is someone, they know someone. There's a degrees of separation. Yeah. I'll tell you a really quick story. There's a company that I know that's very high profile where uh, the founder received initially a $20 million acquisition offer for this person's company. And um, the founder had a great relationship with the CEO in a different capacity, ended up becoming over $250 million. That CEO trumped his own analyst and said, we're gonna raise the price of acquisition from 20 million to 250 million, right? They knew each other, they're buds, right? And that's actually how like a lot of this stuff is getting done. Um, same with venture capital, by the way. I, I actually feel a lot of FOMO. I look at like these funds, I'm like, oh my gosh, like how do they raise like $200 million in like one week? And like, I'm like on, on pavement like nine months trying to go for like 20 million or something like that. Same deal, I mean like uh, rich families, billionaire families and so forth. So I think like, I wouldn't read necessarily too much or feel bad. If like you know you see a comparable company that like went on to raise like so much money out, out of the gate, like it doesn't actually necessarily correlate to their being better founders. Raising money is one thing, and that's awesome, but being an effective operator is totally different. Have you guys heard of a company called WeWork? <laughs> that dude was like unbelievably good at raising money, and in fact, like his severance package today is 1.7 billion dollars off a seven and a half million dollar valuation that's pegged today from 47 and a half. Billion a month ago, right? So like, I'm looking at this, I'm like, what the hell just happened, right? Um, so uh, okay, that's that is what it is. That's kind of a systemic thing. I just want to call it privilege, right? Let's not like like dance around that. The second thing though is just like, all right, I I tend to find that fundraising is a brute force sport, right? Like. People are gonna like you, people aren't gonna like you, but the way that you die in this sport is running out of leads. So our rule of thumb is like, for every $100,000 you wanna raise, if you don't have like those networks and you're not privileged, you probably need to have like 50 pitches, right? And you just keep going and going and going. For my fundraise right now, which I, by the way, this is gonna go live, right? I can't talk about this too publicly. Like we actually have in queue about 1,500 people that we're pitching. Right now, I've gone through about 900 of it already to raise not that much money, like com com compared to like a lot of other funds out there. But you know, over time, this is like the thing I love about founders. Like it sounds scary, and fundraising can be intimidating. And I'm not, and I'm gonna acknowledge that it's probably easier for someone who looks like me, who has like my male parts versus like people who don't. But like, let's call out like one thing here. It's just like, again, two things. One. Just because you're a good fundraiser or bad fundraiser should have no bearing on like how good you are as an operator. So I just wanted to like sort of remind people of that. And the second thing is this, which is just like you gotta just sometimes just hustle and white knuckle through it. But it gets easier and easier and easier because if you truly believe in your business, a 
I'll take a quick side note here. It's like, I kind of always like looked at these people who are knocking on my door, like expressing their views on like religion and trying to convert me into like whatever they have was like as crazies. But then like, as a founder, you kind of have that quality built in. It's like you're spreading the good news, right? It is the gospel. It's just like, you know, when James is pitching me about his company and points out, he's like, you know, he's not doing it just for himself. He actually fundamentally believes that this is a great company that the world needs to see and it'll satisfy my investors, it'll satisfy himself, me, the ecosystem. That's good news. That's like amazing news, right? And like when you kind of switch your mentality and it starts to get easier and easier for you to just like go through these, like you'll either get a binary response. It's just like I totally get it, right? And those are the people that are true believers, you want them on your side anyway, or they totally do not get it, or are just wavering, forget them. I mean, like, why do you want to, why do you want them on your cap table and like continue the seven-year journey? But it's a brute force game. I think you just cannot run out of leads. So actually, tactically on this, how do you not run out of leads? So we struggled with this in our first fund. We did not struggle with this with our second fund. There's a very specific strategy in play here. You get one person to invest in you. You ask that person to recommend one other person in their network. It's not like James saying like, hey Eric, just share my deck with anyone you think is a good fit. That's too much thinking for me. I'm lazy, remember? I'm not gonna do anything with that. It's one person. It seems really accessible. I can do it really quickly. And then maybe James will say like, you're one richest friend, by the way, right? It turns out that one rich person leads to one rich person, and then you're best friends with Dan Gilbert, right? And you're sitting at the billionaire's table, and he's only friends with billionaires at this point, right? So, like, I think this is the mistake that a lot of founders have made, which I have, which is, again, you just share your materials, like say, like, hey, investors, like, spread it out to anyone you know. No, it's, this isn't carpet bombing. Like, you, you, you're a tactical missile saying, like, send this to your richest one friend who would totally get this, this thing. And it gets easier and easier. It just keeps on up-leveling until you never run out of leads, essentially. Hopefully that makes sense. What's some other questions I see from here? I, I have heard Yes, please. Um, the question I was going to ask, when you started this, this talk, you mentioned that you're looking at mission-based meets capitalism. Uh, when you look at mission-based, because I have a mission-based company, and it really irritates me that people leave out the capitalism, because any mission-based, we're still trying to make money at the end of the day, because you can't move a mission without cash. Yeah. Well, how, how do you make that, that determination when you do look at meeting mission with capitalism? How do you make the decision of who you choose? There's no good, so the question was like, how do you really assess the authentic mission and like use that as like a, like a reliable criteria for whom you choose, right? And the answer to that is like, I don't know. Like, I mean, so like, I mean, part is like, really the only thing I can rely on is my observation and gut. Like, okay. you, so this is a big lesson I've learned actually through our model, is like oftentimes what founders are pitching us is totally different from what's actually happening when you're watching them work. Right, like you only pitch roses, right? And then you live shit, right? Like every day, right? I mean, so it's, and it's fine. Like that's kind of like what this journey is about is just like, it's gonna be hard otherwise like everyone would do this, right? So a lot of it is just like, when I'm listening to you talk to your clients, hire someone, talk to your spouse at a barbecue at my house or something like that. Like you, you just begin to pick up consistent cues of people and like their motivation, right? And like. The thing that's really easy to pick up are like transactional people. They're just like, yeah, like uh, I think we're all gonna get like super rich. I want to measure myself by dollars. I compare my net worth to other. Like you start to hear those kinds of cues, and you're like, oh my gosh, like this is this is not like the kind of person I choose to work with. They might be great founders, but like 
if you really measure yourself on that criteria, that's like a kind of sad, also. So like, uh, but versus those who are just like, you know, talking about like, wow, like we did this today, we shipped this new feature, and like this like person called me and talked about like how amazing it was and you know how it's enriched their lives. Like, there's there's just these small kind of gut checks that we take like, when we observe the teams and. And that's about it right now. And honestly, I'm hoping that over the next like 20 to 30 years, that like gets my bullshit meter just gets better and better for this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so I guess my question is this. So my company that I'm working with, the project we're working on, we have a fully developed platform that, that works well, people have great success with, and we're trying to, we've grown it organically. And we're trying to get that Initial funding help build it. What is like the number one thing that you look for after you meet somebody, you like who they are, like the company, but like what is the, I guess, number one thing you look for before you decide to write a $25,000 check? So, yeah, the question was like, what do I, what's like the number one yeah. thing I'm looking for yeah. to write that first 25K check? Um, I'm going to answer this question by not answering your question first, and then I'll answer your okay. question. So, by not answering your question, the first thing I like to ask is why do you want to raise venture capital, right? So let's talk about venture capital for a second. I'm actually convinced that most companies should not raise venture capital. The reason why is that the market may not be supportive enough to, to return like this massive outcome, uh, so it doesn't make sense. Maybe like the business is already growing at a pretty healthy clip. So like, yeah, maybe you shorten the time frame of an exit by a couple of years, but I question like what the cost of that is. And venture capital is a cocaine addiction. So here's the deal, like the way that VCs raise more funds is by markups. Okay. So you know what a markup is basically, I invest in James' company, let's say at a $10 million valuation, and then next year he goes up and raises his uh, Series A at a $50 million valuation. On paper, my, my uh, investment in his company is 5X. What I'll do is then I'll go to the government of Singapore or Malaysia or like Stanford University or University of Michigan's endowment and say like, look how ingenious I am. Like I found this guy and in, five, in just one year I 5 x my investment. And then those parties will then give me more money for my next fund. And we do this every three years, okay? So here's the problem is where venture capital becomes incredibly misaligned with uh, founder incentives, which is what's good for us is not good for you in this scenario. What's good for us is when you raise money every year and grow as quickly as possible, spend as much money as possible and all the resources possible, deplete all your funds so that you raise next year and show the growth that you need to achieve the next milestone, the next milestone, the next milestone. All along the way, you've got your venture capitalist who's raising like a $50 million fund, a $100 million fund, a billion dollar fund. And you know what happens at that point? It's just like, let's say your business fails because it just wasn't a business that was designed for that kind of growth and venture capitalism wasn't right for me. I just raised over a billion dollars from my funds. I take a 2% management fee of that billion dollars for 10 years, $20 million. I get rich off $20 million a year for 10 years guaranteed. I don't care what your company did, right? I'm not speaking for myself, by the way. I'm, just, I'm speaking on behalf of the industry. This is not Eric speaking. This is just like idiot VC speaking, okay? And first off, this is free game because it's a fact. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's freaky, right? How, how, how like misaligned that is, okay? So. All that being said, what is the thing that I look for, right? I think market is a big one in answering whether this is a venture-backable business or not. So our definition of a venture-backable company 
as a pre-seed stage fund, so it's very specific to us and a few other colleagues, is can James' business 100x the post-money valuation that I can get in at right now? So if I give James a million dollar check right now at like, let's say a five million dollar valuation post-money, right? That means his company is essentially being valued at five million dollars. Can his market support a $500 million outcome? Okay? So this actually is kind of interesting because like if you're working in like a very niche kind of sector, let's say you're you're creating like dentures for for golden retrievers, like that actually could be like an amazing business. Like maybe you could actually bootstrap that to like a ten million a year because there's a lot of golden retrievers out there, but the market's like measured in like twenty million dollars, <laughs> right? At least in the United States. So like, I'd be like, no way, like, you should not raise venture for this, right? That's it's a great business, you can defend it for the rest of your life and pass it on to your kids and their kids and their golden retrievers, but like, it's, it's just not gonna be venture backable. Um, versus like, let's say you're, you're solving like a consumer banking problem or, or just something that's like has a crazy population with crazy spending, real estate, I don't know what it is. Um, those are markets that are measured in tens of billions, hundreds of billions, potentially, right? Um, so there's market, but there's also like founder market fit. It's just like, does the founder seem, at least on the outset, based on this 25K check, which I don't know about him, to actually want to chase that kind of outcome? And understands actually the, the journey ahead, that there's gonna be lots of fundraising, uh, lots of growth, lots of pressure for that. And the answer can be sometimes, venture capital is absolutely perfect for the founder, right? There's a certain kind of company problem, founder mindset, uh, mission that, that makes it worthwhile. But again, I, I spent a lot of time trying to convince people not to do it. In that, and that's kind of where we were looking at a pretty, a pretty good, we're kind of figuring out, okay, we could get this good check, but then we're kind of thinking, maybe we'll just try to grow it organically as much as possible yeah. and get, if you have family, like, you sure. know, that can help with it too. But, that's where I was kind of curious about because we're kind of in that stage where we feel like we are honestly able to rip, to raise VC money, but it's just a matter of time, of course. But then during that time, we should be focusing on growing it versus trying to, I don't know, we're kind of like, you know, running around with that. I'm going to tell you a really quick story here. Yeah. So, like, <clears throat> there's this guy, Paul Graham. He's like the founder of Y Combinator. And, like, uh, you guys heard Y Combinator, it's like a prominent accelerator. Yeah, okay, so like, uh, I, don't, I don't ever assume, you're laughing like, oh, oh, oh come on. But like, uh, uh, anyway, I was very, I don't know him well, but I was lucky to hear the story from him once. I was like, um, he's like, okay. He had come back from this like awesome safari in Africa, in Kenya or something like that. And like, he was sort of chilling at a cafe, uh, enjoying his coffee. And then right next to him was this table of engineers. And he was like, there's something off about them, okay? He's like, because they, they all clearly look smart. They're like the you know, Stanford MIT crap that I just mentioned, right? Like all like really smart engineers and so forth working on some problem. And then he realized that, you know what? These are actually people who worked at probably like a large tech company. And as he was sipping his coffee, kind of like looking at the situation, he was reminded of his experiences at, uh, in, in the, the Serengeti or wherever you go to see a safari. And he was like, oh, you know what I'm seeing with off is this is me watching cheetahs in a zoo. So I don't know if you've ever seen a cheetah in the Detroit Zoo. They got a couple of them. They're beautiful creatures. Theoretically, they're capable of running 75 miles an hour to take down a gazelle, 
Uh, but there's something off about these cheetahs. There's like some dude like James coming by three times a day, giving fresh chicken and like preening their little fur, you know, making them purr. So their whole essence of being a cheetah has actually been robbed for them because they've been in the zoo for so long and in captivity. And then when you think about that compared to the cheetah in the wild, there's a very specific kind of thing that you notice. One is oftentimes you're starving. The second thing is when you look at their eyes, they look absolutely crazy, right? And then the third thing is this. They are living to God's potential of what a cheetah was meant to do by being a freaking cheetah in the wild, okay? And like, so I use this metaphor a lot in terms of like thinking about my own career. Like there's been times where I've been a cheetah in the zoo, cheetah in the wild and so forth. And it's fine to go back and forth. You can always escape the zoo in this life. But the, the thing that you start to invite with a venture capital investment is a boss. And over time, you start to feel like you have a board, because you do have a board, and that you're reporting quarterly metrics, and that your board is criticizing you for stuff that they can hardly understand, and they're threatening to fire you, right? And I always say, like, why don't you just defer that as long as possible by, like, bootstrapping or raising a little bit of angel money where you can sort of avoid this stuff? And then like making that decision at the right time as to whether you want to have a boss later, which is going to be your venture capitalist, who, by the way, most of them have never run a company, right, and can't understand what you've done. So like, I'm trying to really scare the crap out of you of just like, I'm seeing a cheat in the wild right now who's like looking at the cage, and it's like, well, like, there's chicken in there, you know, and like, you know, it's a nice comb that like this guy's going to like brush me with, but like avoid the temptation, just stay starving. I'm gonna take one more question from this side of the room because I haven't had a question from this side of the room yet. Yep, go ahead. It's like, um, it's really difficult to compare like one country versus another. Uh, so Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, Calgary, each of them have very different kinds of qualities of, of founders there, much like Atlanta, Detroit, San Francisco, Austin, right? So I, it's hard for me to like generalize there, but I will say this. So the place that we go to Canada the most is Toronto. We see a lot of density of uh, a talent there. I'll say, by the way, this is kind of a side story. So like, th those who grew up in the 80s and 90s in Michigan, do you remember those damn Phantom of the Opera commercials? 872-2222. They ran that for like 22 years, right? In Toronto, and I was like, please like, get me out of this, this city. <laughs> like, anyway, they finally saw the production. I, was, I just got triggered, I'm sorry, by this like, very thing. So anyways, um, here's the difference though. When you go to Toronto, you find amazing talent. So they got like their equivalent of like University of Michigan, like much closer to Toronto, like University of Toronto, University of Waterloo, it's very close, feeding tons of like great computer science graduate, amazing technical talent. But there's a weird quality there where the founders culturally just don't like to share anything. So if I'm like, 
working on a startup, and James is working on a totally different startup in Toronto. Like, there's no culture of actually meeting up like this and like openly talking about like my depression in running this company, or just like like tips on like what has worked for you on user acquisition, what has worked for me. Let's just like share with each other. Sure, and like, and this is like full loop back to like what we were talking about before. It's just like you find that kind of openness here, which is just like I don't understand this problem. Can you walk me through it, James? And James is like, yeah, no problem. Let's just grab a drink and you know after work, and I will just like walk you through how to set up like an ad campaign with custom targeting or something like that. Um, I find a lot more of that here, and uh, and this I think again like the thing that keeps drawing me back. Uh, can't deny that there's great talents in Canada, um, but again like you know the the thing I always come back to is. Uh, Great hustlers look like anyone can come from anywhere. So I don't want to discount like uh, other stereotypes I have around like these different cities. Like there's still great founders emerging from them, right? Including this one. Give me one Thank you, James. Thanks, Amanda. Bambi, the We hope you've enjoyed this special edition of the Doers Network with the fireside chat with Eric Bond and James Chapman. For more information, you can go to hustlefund.vc. That's www.hustlefund.vc for all your venture capital needs. For Plainsight, you can go to plainsight.app. That's www.plainsight.app. Or you can go to the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store for the Plainsight app to install on your phone or mobile device. This podcast is produced and brought to you by Bamboo Detroit, located in the heart of downtown Detroit. Bamboo Detroit specializes in co-working space and amenities for entrepreneurs and forward thinkers. Bamboo Detroit, where we do more together because Detroit is for doers. If you would like to support our podcast, you can become a sponsor of the Doers Network. We have gold, silver, and bronze packages available. If you have a business you would like to promote, you'll be able to reach over 10,000 listeners around the world each month at your fingertips. So if you want to reach our audience of founders, CEOs, innovators, and leaders, become a sponsor today. For more information, email us at info at bamboodetroit.com. We appreciate your support by subscribing to our podcast right here on the Doers Network. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Doers Podcast, where actives grow and thrive. The Doers Podcast is produced by Bamboo Detroit Network. For more information, visit us at bamboodetroit.com.